I think we're on and I think we're live streaming as well. Um, well, just want to welcome everyone to our Logos Bible study. Um, hope you all had fruitful discussions in your discipleship groups and also want to welcome those who are um, joining us via live stream. I know many of you are sick, uh, recovering, uh, our family as well. And so our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Well, why don't I pray and we'll get started as we look to God's word for tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are our Heavenly Father, not because of anything what we have done on our own end to have a relationship with you, Lord. But as we consider your word for us tonight, we're just reminded of the gospel and what Christ did on our behalf so that we can have access to your throne of grace and that we can call out to you and, and pray to you as our Father in heaven and to have a fellowship and a relationship that will extend to all of eternity. Lord, we know that this is not anything that we have earned on our own, but it is all comes to us by grace, knowing that our sins were what stood between us and you, but you provided a way for those of us who trust in your son and repent of our sins to be reconciled to you. And in that we find great comfort and great hope and great encouragement, even as we await your return, as we await our future glorification, even as we continue to live in this life, a world that has fallen, as we struggle with our flesh and the indwelling sin within us, Lord. Our hope and our confidence is not in ourselves or our abilities, but in the fact that Christ has come, he has died and he has risen again so that we might know you and know you to the fullest. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> well some of us last week had an opportunity to take our kids trick-or-treating. <clears throat> October 31st is also known to some as uh, Reformation Day, and it marks the anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Feasties on the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And 500 years later, people today protest about many things. Right? They protest about the results of the election, for example. Um, they protest for equal rights for those who belong to the black or LGBTQ plus community. Right? They protest for better wages and working conditions. However, what Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers protested against was the unbiblical teachings and the practices of the Catholic Church as it relates to the gospel and the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the false gospel that was promoted by the papacy at the time, that one can be saved by carrying out certain man-made sacraments through practices such as confession, penance, and payment of indulgences, was a not-so-subtle attack on the Bible's teaching on justification by faith, that the righteousness that we all need can only come from one place, and that's not the Pope. It is God who is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And being Protestants, it's easy for us to point the finger at the Catholic Church. And certainly we are called to defend sound doctrine and reject anything that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. Yet do we consider how often we function as practical Catholics when we base our salvation and seek to find our assurance of it in how we serve, how much we give, our moral deeds, or our good works? In addition, how often do we compare ourselves favorably to those around us, our unbelieving family and friends, or even other believers that you know of? Well, at least I'm not a member of that church, but a member of this church, of Lighthouse Bible Church. Well, at least I serve as a discipleship group leader, and I contribute a portion of my money to the church. And there is a real temptation and danger to assume that just because we belong to a church like ours, where the Bible's taught as God's inspired and 
authoritative truth that we are saved. We are not to be presumptuous like the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jesus' days who claimed to have Abraham as their father. Instead, we are to closely examine our lives and our doctrine, to test ourselves in the light of God's word, to see whether we are in the faith. Do we merely profess faith? Or is there a true confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but have any of you struggled with assurance of salvation? As you examine your life today, how confident are you that if you were to die, you would go to heaven and be in the presence of God? When you fall into temptation yet again, how sure can you be that you will be saved? Where do you look for assurance? Especially in a world full of uncertainty, can we have any certainty about anything? Well, the testimony of God's word is that while we are not to place any confidence in the flesh or presume upon his grace, we can have total confidence, full assurance, and absolute certainty about our salvation. But it does not come by looking at our own works or by pursuing our own righteousness. Instead, it comes through putting our faith in the work that was accomplished on our behalf by our triune God and Savior. As we will see shortly, this was evidenced by the Father's love that was poured out upon us by our union with Jesus Christ and by the presence of his Spirit in our lives. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And tonight as we come to Romans chapter 5, it marks a transition to a new section spanning the next several chapters of his letter that focuses on our assurance of salvation. Previously, the Apostle Paul had presented his central thesis of the book in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, when he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This good news of the gospel was not given in a vacuum, but was written into a particular context. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, we see that the backdrop for the gospel was the holy and righteous wrath of God. And what was the reason for divine wrath? Well, Paul explains that it was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is manifest in giving us over to our lusts, to our passions, and a corrupt or debased mind so that filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, we are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's not a list that makes us feel very good about ourselves. It's what theologians refer to as the total depravity of man. And clearly, the Apostle Paul's goal was not to build up the self-esteem of the Christians in Rome. Instead, he presents our utterly helpless and hopelessly dark situation as the predicament that the gospel seeks to resolve. In light of our universal sinfulness and desperate need for an alien righteousness, the Apostle Paul goes on to show how divine love and grace provided that righteousness, a righteousness of God that comes apart from the law and through faith in Christ alone. In chapter 4, he supports this central truth about our justification by faith, by giving us the example of Abraham, who as the father of many nations was justified or declared righteous by faith. His faith was counted to him as righteousness before he was ever circumcised, proving that his justification was not based on anything he did. His unwavering confidence in the promises of God, his assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen 
would serve as an example for all believers who would come after him. As he closes out this previous section and the immediate context of our passage for this evening, look with me at Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. <laughs> says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Right? Notice the shift in pronouns from him and his, referring to Abraham, to us, and ours, referring to the Apostle Paul and the saints in Rome. Very simply, the Apostle Paul draws a connection from Abraham to the Christians in Rome, and by extension, to every believer in Jesus Christ. That justification has always been, and will always be, by faith in our crucified and risen Lord. And starting in chapter 5, verse 1, the very next verse, the Apostle Paul builds upon this unchanging truth, which is the heart of the gospel, and draws out step by step the results and implication of our justification. He writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith once and for all, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here we see that on the basis of God pronouncing us just and righteous in and through his son Jesus Christ, there are several consequences that necessarily result from our justification by faith. What are they? Verse 1, we have peace with God as the starting point. Before I became a Christian and learned about biblical decision-making, I remember making decisions based on a piece I felt about it. For example, should I apply to this college or that college? I would often pray about it until it just felt right to me. And many times when I found myself in a stressful situation, for example, before taking my SAT or my AP exams, I'd pray for God's help and peace. Certainly, God promises his perfect peace to those who trust in him, who by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. But that's not the peace that the Apostle Paul refers to here in Romans. The peace with God that we have through our justification is an objective state and position. It's about a relationship more than a feeling. The implication is that prior to being justified by faith, we were not at peace with God, but at war. With what's been going on between Russia and Ukraine and in the Middle East, this imagery should not be a foreign concept to us. As enemies and rebels, we were at enmity with God. There was strife and there was conflict, not because of mutual disagreement or irreconcilable differences, but because of our sins against his authority and his rule. We hated God, wanted nothing to do with him, until his abounding grace subdued us, brought us to our knees, and into a peaceful relationship with him. This peace with God is more than an absence of hostility as we might think of it today. In the culture into which Paul wrote, peace carried a positive sense of harmony and well-being. Once objects of his wrath, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And through Christ, we have not only been reconciled to the Father, but adopted into his family. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if meditating on this gospel truth does not astound us, humble us, 
and fill us with awe and gratitude and worship of our God, we've missed the point entirely. But it doesn't end there. Verse 2. We gain access into a position of grace, one in which we firmly stand and are established. Justified by faith, so that our relationship with God has completely changed from one of enmity to one of peace, we are granted access to blessings and benefits that none of us deserve. It's all by his grace, not by our works. The word access can be translated entry or introduction. The idea is that once we were shut out, but now we've been let in. And once we're in, we're in, never to be let out again. And Martin Lloyd-Jones gives this illustration of someone who's living on the streets outside the palace of a king for many years. And one day Christ comes out, takes him by his hand, and brings him inside. He clothes him with his righteousness, brings him into the presence of the king, and introduces him by name. And for the rest of his days, he is invited to join the king in feast and festivity within the palace that he had once stood outside. But to use maybe a more contemporary analogy, and this relates to my son Isaiah, who just started basketball season at his junior high. It's like my son Isaiah standing outside the Chase Center, watching the big screen jumbotron each game, knowing that that's the closest he'll ever get to watching the Golden State Warriors play. But then all of a sudden, Steph Curry comes out and gives him some free tickets. But they're not just any tickets. They are front row, center court seats that come with exclusive VIP backstage passes reserved for only the owner, the players, and the coaches, and access to all the cotton candy he can eat. But then Coach Kerr surprises him with season tickets, not just for this season, but for a lifetime, as long as he remains a Warriors fan. Now, how do you think Isaiah will feel at that moment? Now, we don't need to take this analogy too far, but hopefully you get the point. This is all of grace. It comes to us through our justification by faith. Having been justified by faith, we not only have peace with God, but we gain access to this grace in which we stand. Once we were under the law, but now we are under grace. And he looks upon us with favor. We've not only been adopted into his family, but made fellow heirs with Christ. Once spiritually destitute, we are now enriched and are invited to approach his throne of grace. How? Well, the author of Hebrew writes, with confidence. But where do we find our confidence? It's not in ourselves, but in Christ, our advocate and great high priest, who intercedes on our behalf and presents us before the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, do we come with such confidence, realizing this incredible grace in which we stand in the presence of our Heavenly Father and righteous King? But not only that, the second half of verse 2 says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul reminds the saints in Rome and all who would believe in Christ that Having been justified by faith, we have hope. That is a confident expectation and anticipation of our future glorification. Biblical hope is not merely wishful thinking, but the certainty expressed in Philippians 1.6 where he writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For the true child of God, it's this hope and assurance of the future glory of God that ought to bring us ultimate joy. More than anything in this life, whether it's a job, a relationship, a ministry, or material blessing. What do you most look forward to? Is it your next payday or your wedding day 
the due date of your child, the day your children will finally be out of your house, or this glory of God that is to come. Having been justified by faith, do we rejoice in hope of divine glory? If we're honest, for most of us, we struggle with this, don't we? If you're like me, our minds are occupied with what we need to get through this week. This is why it is so important for us not only to know the gospel, but to meditate deeply upon its truth until we appreciate the fullness of our salvation in Christ and come to the point where by faith we can rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. In verses 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul shows us the results of our justification by faith in order to demonstrate how great our salvation is. Can I get my next slide? Here's our authorial intent. Having been justified by faith, we have received a salvation that is altogether complete, eternally secure, and absolutely free through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, from justification to glorification, God has provided a salvation that is absolute, final, and complete, lacking nothing. He has blessed us beyond measure. He looks, us, looks upon us who were once his enemies with favor and with grace. Until that day, we see him face to face, not because of our works, but because of his goodness and faithfulness not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. The Apostle Paul goes on in verses three to five to support his authorial intent by showing us how it impacts our present living, specifically how we rejoice and endure in sufferings in this life. He writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The progressive sanctification that we experience as believers as we handle the sufferings and trials in this life with increasing joy, endurance, and hope serves as further proof of our justification by faith and evidence of his work of grace in our lives. What distinguishes a true believer from an unbeliever, even one who professes Christ, is not the presence or absence of suffering, but how we deal with it according to God's word. And whether it produces endurance, character, and hope, rather than bitterness, hopelessness, and shame, and what ultimately guarantees our glorification as we face trials of various kinds in this life is not only the love of God that has been poured into our hearts, but also the Holy Spirit who has been given to every believer to bear witness to our identity as God's children and provide assurance of our salvation in Christ. But before moving on, and I know we still have a lot of ground to cover, it's worth pausing and remembering all that we have received through Christ. If we are in Christ, our salvation is complete and secure. As we'll eventually come to in chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because our salvation is fixed, sealed, and guaranteed through the divine work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if that were not enough, we come to a familiar passage in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Well, let's read that together. Starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, there's so much here to unpack, but to simply connect it to Paul's authorial intent. Here's the argument he's making to the Christians in Rome. That just as it is impossible for us to earn our salvation, it is impossible for us to lose our salvation. I'll say that again. Just as it is impossible for us to earn our salvation, it is impossible for us to lose our salvation. Well, why? Let me ask you this. If Christ died for you and for me, verse 6, while we were still weak, which emphasizes our total inability when it comes to our salvation, devoid of any strength, and and unable to please or obey God. While Christ died for you and for me, while we were ungodly, right, not even righteous, let alone good, but hating him and opposed to everything he is and stands for. If Christ died for you and for me while we were still sinners, and verse 10, while we were enemies, at enmity with him. If Christ died on the cross to secure our salvation while we were everything represented in that middle box and more, then is there anything worse that we can possibly do to lose our salvation? Think about it for a moment. Is there anything that we can do if we were all that and more when Christ died for us that we can do to lose our salvation? Spiritually speaking, from God's perspective, we were already at the bottom of the dumpster. So then do you have any reason to doubt God's love for you when he gave his only son, not to the good and the righteous, but to us who were unrighteous and ungodly, sinners and enemies deserving of God's wrath and condemnation? Brothers and sisters, it is only to the extent that we realize not only what Christ did, that he died, right? That's repeated four times here in this section, but also the nature of the ones for whom he died, not the righteous or good, but the totally depraved, helpless, sinful, opposed to hating God as his sworn enemies. It is only to the extent that we realize these things that we begin to appreciate the depths and height of the love with which God has loved us in Christ. The security and the safety that we have in that love. Truly, we can be absolutely sure, as Paul would later go on to say, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I love Paul's use of the phrase, much more, here in verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And again in verse 10, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Later in verse 15, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And once again in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. It's the argument of the greater to the lesser. If God accomplished our salvation while we were his enemies, how much more will he secure it now that we are his children? In giving us his son, God has already done the greatest thing possible. There's nothing more he could have done. Therefore, we can have the full assurance and complete confidence in it. Our justification guarantees our future and final salvation. For God, unlike man, will not go back on his word. He remains faithful and cannot deny himself, even when we are unfaithful. Brothers and sisters, in the busyness of our daily lives, how often are we 
truly astounded by the greatness of our Savior and our salvation. In our religiosity, having been churched for many years, we're too easily satisfied with being familiar with the points of the gospel. For those of you who appreciate fine dining, it's like going to a five-star Michelin restaurant, ordering their famous artichoke appetizer, and being satisfied with nibbling on the leaf of the artichoke without ever coming to the heart. Do we see the gospel as necessary and sufficient, but also as wondrous and amazing? That is not just a message that our unsaved children need to hear, but for a world out there, but one that we preach to ourselves and to one another. Do we marvel at the salvation we have in Christ, which arises from the love of God and comes to us by his infinite grace? Well, this takes us to our final section, verses 12 through 21. And we're not going to be able to draw out every detail in the time we have left. But if we were to look at the forest and not the trees as it relates to Paul's authorial intent, in these 10 verses, we see further evidence of a salvation that is altogether complete, eternally secure, and absolutely free in Christ Using the word therefore in verse 12, he makes a transition and draws a connection from the previous section we just looked at. That the ultimate proof of our assurance of salvation is that we are in Christ as we were once in Adam. And to support his overarching point, the Apostle Paul, as a self-respecting Hebrew, uses parallel structure to compare and contrast our union with Adam with our union with Christ. As you go through the text, almost every verse in this section compares or contrasts who we were in Adam as fallen humanity with who we now are in Christ as as believers. And Paul shows us that we have the same relationship now to our Lord Jesus Christ as we had before our salvation to Adam. In doing so, he demonstrates that our salvation is not just a matter of forgiveness. It is about a radical change in our position and standing before God. Formerly in Adam, we are now in Christ. Specifically through Adam, sin entered the world and death reigned and spread to all men as the many were made sinners and as judgment brought condemnation upon all men. Through Christ, the grace of God has come And the free gift of righteousness reigned and abounded as the many will be made righteous, leading to justification and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is revealed through all of this is that God chose by design to deal with humanity through a head and representative. Adam was created according to sovereign decree to act on behalf of the entire human race, such that when he sinned, all sinned. But then how are we to understand the fact that we are all guilty, held responsible in God's sight for the sin of Adam? Or as my nine-year-old son likes to put it, isn't this all Adam's fault? To which Paul would respond, no, it's not just Adam's fault. For while it's certainly true that we all sinned in Adam and are guilty before God on account of that one sin, which God imputed to us, we are not off the hook. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, the Apostle Paul had already established that whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. At the same time, what theologians call the doctrine of original sin is an interpretive challenge. How is it that through one man all are made sinners and held guilty before God? How is it that we inherit Adam's sin which is imputed to us? From our limited vantage point, it does seem almost unfair. Yet that is the testimony of God's word. It's one of the mysteries contained in scripture 
revealed to us through divine inspiration that reminds us that God is God and we are not. Our human minds, finite as they are, cannot fully comprehend or appreciate all the ways and purposes of God. And when we try, it often leads us to a place, as it did with Adam and Eve, where we begin to question God's goodness and justice. And to say, well, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. And therefore, I reject this doctrine of original sin. But then who is acting as the ultimate authority? Well, we are. And are we to say that it's any more unfair that the truth that Christ should die for our sins and his righteousness is imputed to us? Instead, you and I ought to accept it by faith, to take God at his word, believing what he has decreed and revealed according to his infinite wisdom. That when Adam sinned, all sinned, and because of that sin, death has come upon us all. After all, he is the potter, and we are the clay. And as our creator, he has every right to do as he wills. And if you still struggle to accept how this can be true, simply look at our lives and the world that we live in. Not just the world that we are living in today, but the whole course of human history is overwhelming evidence of the total depravity of man and the universality of death. This is our common experience, and it can only explain by what Adam did in our relationship to him. All of our problems and all of our needs stem from the reality that sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. And this is the context in man's pre-existing condition into which the law was given. Here in verse 13, the Apostle Paul returns to the law as an essential piece of the gospel. He affirms that sin was in the world before the law was given. And as a result of this sin, death not only spread, but also reigned since the days of Adam. So then, what was the purpose of the law? The sin already existed and death through sin. What function did the law serve when it was given through Moses? Well, we have already established that the law was never intended as a way of salvation. The Apostle Paul made this abundantly clear in the first four chapters of his letter. For example, in Romans 3.20, he writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But he continues in the very same verse to affirm that through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, in order to rightly understand this idea that knowledge of sin comes through the law, we must first recognize that there was already an awareness of sin. No one can plead ignorance and say, well, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. All of us are without excuse because according to Romans 1, our conscience bears witness against us and God has revealed himself plainly and generally to all men through his creation. So then the purpose of the law goes beyond simply making us aware of sin. What the law does is to bring knowledge of sin by clearly defining sin so that now it's no longer about just doing something wrong, a lapse in judgment, or mental error or slip-up. It's about breaking the law of God. It's about missing the mark and crossing the line. Ultimately, it's about falling short of God's standard and glory. Whereas sin is not counted where there is no law, now through the law, sin and trespass, sin and trespass actually increased. Verse 20. But it's not just our knowledge of sin that increases as a result of the law. More than head knowledge, the law increases our conviction over sin. That it is high treason against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that it is defiance against God's authority, his sovereignty, and his righteousness. This idea is captured in David's confession to the Lord after his sin with Bathsheba when he writes in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
But not only does the law convict us of sin, it also convicts us of our sinfulness. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul explains how we were spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The law brings conviction of the depth and extent of our sinfulness, that in Adam we were spiritually dead, utterly incapable of doing good or pleasing God, let alone save ourselves. But that is not all that the apostle meant when he writes that the law came in to increase trespass. When we come to Romans 7, we also see that because of sin's effect upon us, the law actually incites us to sin. The law not only increases our knowledge and strengthens our conviction of sin, it arouses our sinful passions, verse 5. Through the law, sin produces in us all kinds of covetousness, verse 8. And because of what sin has done to us, by corrupting our nature, the law stirs in us an increasing desire to do the very thing it tells us not to do. It's like a child that thinks to himself, because I can't cross this blue line, I'm going to do it. This is what the Puritans refer to as the sinfulness of sin. And it's what the law came in to reveal and expose about us. So then, is there any question that this is true? That through one man's disobedience, sin invaded our lives? the law increasing our knowledge, our conviction, and our compulsion to sin, bringing death and condemnation to all who are in Adam. But praise be to God that that is only half of the story. For where sin increased, the grace of God abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. And through the perfect obedience of Christ, who is the true and better Adam, who was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, and who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, his righteousness is imputed to those who are in Christ. This offer of eternal life is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile not only for the rich, but also for the poor, not only for the educated, but also for the simple, for any man, woman, or child who would believe in Christ. But to make it explicitly clear that there is no room for human achievement or contribution, five times the Apostle Paul mentions here that it is a free gift of grace, the cost having been paid once and for all by the priceless blood of Christ. Again, we do not fully understand how this all works, how the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and how one died for all, so that through his vicarious life, death, and resurrection, justification now comes to all who would trust in him for their salvation. It is a mystery to us, but on the basis of what God has revealed to us in his inspired and authoritative word, we can be unshaken unashamed, and undeniably sure of the truth of the gospel, which, bring, <clears throat> which brings us back to our authorial intent. As objects of God's abounding love and mercy, the salvation we've received by grace alone, through faith alone, is one that is altogether complete, eternally secure, absolutely free, through our union with Christ. Our salvation begins with Christ, and it ends with Christ. To highlight this point, Christ is referred to 14 times in 21 verses. Okay? We should not miss what's obvious, that all of this comes to us through our union with Christ. Verse 1, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access into this grace. Verse 2. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8. We have now been justified by his blood. Verse 9. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Verse 10. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 10. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Through whom we now have received reconciliation. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 15. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 17. We're almost done. For one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Verse 18. And by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 19. So that grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 21. The life of Christ, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, the grace of Christ, the obedience of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. No wonder Paul exclaims, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we close for this evening, if I can just give two points of application from our passage. I can have my final slide. First, do you know Jesus Christ? And is he your Lord? According to God's word, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are either under sin, leading to eternal death, judgment, and condemnation, or under grace, having been justified by faith and given you life in Christ. What are you waiting for? The only thing holding you back is your pride, it's your sin. And so humble yourself, leave your sin, stop striving after your own righteousness, and instead come to Christ for the salvation you need, one that is free, complete, and secure in him. Second, do you have this hope and confidence that is promised to all who are in Christ Jesus? If you lack assurance of salvation, perhaps you're guilty of trying to examine your own spiritual life, see if you're doing enough. But you're not saved by anything done by you, by going to church, by reading your Bible, or by any other Christian activity or service. It's not even dependent on the magnitude of your faith. It was never about naming and claiming or about any subjective feeling or experience. Rather, salvation comes to us entirely by grace and we're to place our confidence in the finished work of our God and Savior on the cross. At the end of the day, it's not about the greatness of our faith or about anything we do, but about the greatness of the one in whom we have our faith. Finally, as we grow in the gospel as disciples of Christ, and not just in the head knowledge of the truth, there will always be a renewing of the mind and a changing of our affections that leads to an obedience of faith. If you recall from Romans chapter 1, verse 5, this was Paul's primary purpose in writing to the saints, right? not merely to increase our knowledge about the gospel, but to bring about their obedience of faith. And we'll consider this more closely next time, but I simply want to just introduce it to us here. Because one thing that you might have noticed is that there's no imperative found anywhere in this entire chapter. In fact, if we trace Paul's train of thought from the beginning of this epistle to the Romans, there's not a single command given in the first 148 verses. It is only when we come to Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, that we come to the first commands given. Now, do you think that's by accident? Well, as Christians, there are certainly things we're called to do particularly in pursuing holiness and sanctification. But it must never be disconnected from the gospel truth of what God has done to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The moment we do, it becomes just a set of rules. Do this, don't do that. 
According to God's word, both in the Old Testament and the New, obedience should never be separate from who God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do in Christ. Otherwise, legalism sets in. Our commitments should always flow from our confession. Gospel indicatives necessarily lead to gospel imperatives. We must never flip the order. Men, in the church, we often attribute our laziness, our worldliness, our struggle with sexual purity and private devotions to a lack of discipline or accountability. In reality, it's a lack of appreciation and application of the gospel to the thoughts and the desires and the motivations of our hearts. Ladies, the same goes for you in your pursuit for godliness and holiness in your life, in the areas of discontentment, anger, worry, and anxiety, in your struggle to find satisfaction and sufficiency in Christ and not in your circumstances or relationships. We all need to grow in the gospel. God, through the Apostle Paul, is belaboring the gospel because he knows us perfectly, our real needs and the propensity of our hearts. So let's not leave here tonight without considering the specific areas of our lives where the gospel needs to shine and where there needs to be repentance and faith in Christ. But let's also remember that as his children, we stand in his grace each day and rejoice in the certainty and the hope of God's glory that is to come through the power and the promise of this gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and for revealing your purposes to us through your gospel. Lord, we would never have discovered this by self-searching. You revealed it to us because you love us and because of your grace poured out upon us through the cross. Lord, help us not to become familiar with the gospel. Forgive us for the ways that we have. Lord, help us to see the richness and the beauty of the gospel and the need for us to grow in it, not just in our head knowledge, but in our conviction, in our confidence in it, not just in our comprehension and understanding of it, but in our appreciation and our application for it. Lord, we thank you that we have everything that we need in Christ. Our salvation is complete. It is secure. So help us to put and rest our hope in the good news of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.